I greet you in the name of Jesus, which is still the only name under heaven, given among men whereby we must be saved. I'm in love with this name of Jesus. Somebody give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Well, it is an honor and a treat to be in the Jennings Metroplex and to enjoy the presence of the Lord with so many apostolic men. And I tell you what, Holy Ghost has been in this place the last several services. Thank you, Brother Blankenship, for minding the Holy Ghost. I listen to folks just like we've got through hearing Brother Boyd, Brother Blankenship. I don't know. It, it kind of discourages how I feel about my calling. I just, uh, <laughs> I may just be talking today. I'm not sure. Uh, but it is, uh, I thrilled at the, the preaching of Brother Blankenship last night. The statement was made, I think, by the pastor concerning Brother T.C. Alexander. said, you hoped you had that much fire or something when you was, what, 98 or something like that, 88. I was emceeing a conference in Indianapolis some years ago at uh, Brother McKinley's, McKinley's church, and church anniversary, rather, and a brother that was up in his 80s, his name was Brother Wallace Owings. And he got up and he just cranked it out. Lord, he, he can preach. And I was emceeing the meeting and I got up and I said, Lord, I hope I got that much spiz when I'm his age. One of my friends behind me hollered out, you ain't got that much now. <laughs> so I'm in a heap of trouble. I, what's sad was that was about 10 years ago. <laughs> I love these good men that have preached today. I shall never forget these two sermons. You'll never know what that meant to me. I, I treasure getting to be in service and hearing preaching. You know, I don't have a plight to give you. God's been more than wonderful to me. But I get tired of listening to myself preach, and it's wonderful to hear somebody else break the word of God to you. If you've ever evangelized, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I've got some bad news, and I've got some good news. The bad news is life is not always fair. And the good news is I've saved a bundle of money on Geico Auto Insurance. Well, I think we've taken a sufficient break between the last two services. <laughs> now, let me just say something as a man who has pastored for 30 years. I've evangelized for about 13. Your pastor should always be your favorite preacher.
And if you, it's okay to compliment the ministry that your pastor brings by. Actually, it's a compliment to his good taste and judgment if you like the preachers that he brings around. But don't ever give the visiting or the guest minister a compliment that you haven't given your pastor a better compliment. Because he's the man that answers to God for you. And don't, you know, it's easy to listen to preachers and ask advice here and there. And some stupid preacher may give you some advice when you ask him. But that's like wearing two watches. Then you won't know what time it is. I, I, let, maybe I didn't explain that to you, but if somebody, if you're not happy with what your pastor's position is on a certain issue, don't go asking around, find out what somebody else believes, because you want to argue with him. You're getting ready to get an unteachable spirit if you're not careful. Now, I, 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 try, I try to be careful. I have a pocket watch. I've been known to wear a wrist watch. Uh, I got one of them $11 Walmart ones. It's pretty conservative. And I'm, I'm just trying to be me. I just, I'm, I'm saying that just to make a statement. I had a guy move to my church, came from a church in, in Victorville, California years ago that didn't believe in wearing watches at all. And if there's anything my father taught me, and that is honor somebody else's holiness standards, they might be right. But the man came and he sat on our church pew for about two weeks. I know you're standing, but you may not get to stand again for a couple hours, so just enjoy the, the, the moment. And he's, I said, Brother, we are just so thrilled to have you here. The saxophone you're playing is just, oh, it's just awesome, man. We love you and your family. You're just precious couple. I said, I notice. I'm teaching Bible class. I said, I notice you don't wear a watch. He said, that's right. I said, now, you notice that we have them here. We try to wear them just so we won't be late for church and work and whatever. I said, but, brother, please don't buy a watch and offend your conscience and hurt what you feel in here just because this is a church where they have watches. I, I wouldn't want to. You'd have to deal with a, a grieved spirit like that. On the other hand, if you're sitting here without one and we're wearing them and you feel like you're spiritually superior to the pastor, I'm ordering you to go buy two watches and wear one on each arm till you get over that. <laughs> when you begin to feel like you're superior to the pastor and holiness standards, you, you just move to a dimension he can no longer help you. One of the fruits and evidences of the Holy Ghost is that you have a teachable spirit. If he's not right, you put him in God's hand. You talk to God about him. God will take care of him. But you don't be running your mouth off to anybody else. All right. I'm going to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse number 13. Let me just throw this out. There's no extra charge for this. When I became the pastor in South Bend... We had about 125 people. 26 of them left because they said I couldn't feed them. And uh, they probably were right. You can't feed folks that don't want to eat. They don't like to cook. I wish you'd leave that alone. Make up your mind. Do you want it up or down? 
I had a man in my church who worked for the Skyline Corporation. He was a superintendent of one of the largest trailer and mobile home factories in Elkhart, Indiana. Made big bucks. He left because he said, I wasn't Southern enough. Well, actually, at this point in my life, I'm bilingual. I can say y'all and I can say you guys. But I, could, I wasn't saying y'all enough to make him happy. And his son was my bass player, and the son's wife was my organ player. And the son came up to me and said, Pastor, I love my daddy. Don't ever misunderstand that. But I've been taught all my life, stand by the pulpit. He said, I just want you to know that my wife and I aren't going to leave you. We're going to, we're going to stay here. I wanted to cry when I saw the loyalty that was in this young man, and I put my arm around his shoulder, and I said, Son, God's going to bless you. He was making $28,000 a week. Uh, or rather, a week, yeah. <laughs> I'll get you some applications soon as service is over. $28,000 a year as head receiver in a warehouse there at the plant at Skyline Corporation. Now, it's a multi-billion dollar enterprise. It's, not, it's no small potatoes. And he, he didn't even work in the same plant that his father worked in. His daddy was number 19 in the corporation ladder structure. He, he told me, he said, Brother Ballesteros, he said, Friday, this was on a Sunday, he said, a helicopter landed on the pad outside my plant. And the number one guy got out of the helicopter and he came in with a clipboard and he was asking for me. And he came up to me and he said, Greg, I want you to go home this lunch hour, change into a suit and report into my office at 1 o'clock. He said, Brother Ballester, I was scared to death. And when I walked in, I found out they made me number three man in the corporation, way up in the six figures every year. Now, don't tell me it doesn't pay to stand by the man of God. God knows how to bless you and honor you for standing by your pastor. Praise God. Matthew chapter 24. That's all the announcements. I'm going to read verse number 13 and let you sit down. But why don't you read it with me? But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. God bless you. You may be seated. I take it we're supposed to close at 12 o'clock. Why not? Do you pay by the hour or by the job? I preached for a man a year or so ago, my first time ever to be at his church out in the middle of nowhere. His son actually had been friends with my daughter and her husband in years gone by, and I didn't know that. The boy had actually been in my home with a group of about 15 young people and spent the night, and I had no memory of that because I was uh, gone or something. But 
This young man, uh, according to his dean, was quite a, quite a young man. He said he was one of the best young preachers that he'd ever heard. He was a gifted singer and keyboard player. He also uh, was, he said, an awesome Christian. He could play baseball, football, basketball, just was, he just was the best of all worlds, it seemed like. I do know this much, he was his father's pride and joy. This preacher happened to have two daughters that he loved dearly, but this was his only son. And this son now was in his middle 20s and was the assistant pastor at the church with his father. He has uh, had sugar diabetes and the information I got was still unclear. We don't know if he had an attack or had a problem. All we know is, is that in swimming one afternoon with two or three guys in the church in one of the ponds behind uh, one of the saints' house, he drowned. Now, this country church has a graveyard right beside the church. And uh, so it happened that the pastor's home was across the street in this Tenancy community. And when he would walk out the front door, the first thing he saw every day was his son's tombstone. Well, by the time I got to this place where I'm talking about today, the boy had been dead four years. And I had no mental picture of what the boy looked like. I, I, I just was struggling for some kind of identity as to who the boy was. But this much I do know is that the father was still crying. And every day he would cry. He told me that every day he went to the grave and sat there sometimes an hour, two hours every day, weeping over the loss of his son. I've never lost a child. And... Uh, I know, I can only imagine it would be a parent's worst nightmare. I saw how my mom and dad went through the loss of my sister at the age of 17. What I do know is that I sat there every day with a handkerchief at lunchtime or every time I was with him and he had his out and he would cry so I just started carrying mine. The Bible says rejoice with them that rejoice and it says weep with them that weep and so we were crying together. I came back a year later for a marriage seminar. And uh, about that time, we went out to eat. The pastor's wife showed me a little plaque that they had given them uh, commemorating or remembering, I should say, five years since their son had died. And uh, on the way to the restaurant, the pastor's wife said to me, she said, Brother Ballestero, she said, I read somewhere in a magazine or a newspaper about a group of sports writers. I don't know if it was just the United States or Canada as well, but they got together to commemorate and to honor a hockey player. Not because he was good, not because he'd played a long time, not because he... Uh, was a crowd favorite, but they honored him for one reason only, and that is because with broken bones and bloodied body and teeth knocked out and eye injuries and head injuries, he wouldn't sit on the bench. 
he kept on playing. And they honored him for being willing to play hurt. And that's what I want to preach to you about today. I have done the math and I've looked at this crowd. I see about six people that have heard me preach this in another state. I actually wrestled with the Holy Ghost about whether or not to preach this and work two days on something else, but the Lord won't let it go. So I don't know who I'm talking to today, I, I, but I feel a heaviness in my spirit and I just want to talk from my heart. Can I do that? I wish that I could wave a magic wand and make your world perfect. And I wish that I could put everything back together again, but you know that even the world understands that nobody's promised us a rose garden. We don't have the promise of a perfect life. You're going to have problems whether you live for God or not, as Brother Boyd said. <laughs> but if you don't live for God, you don't have anybody to help you with your problems. I'm glad I've got somebody to help me with my problems. Job made the statement in his book, chapter 13, verse number 15. He said, here's a man that had lost his children, lost his cattle, his lost buildings. He lost all kinds of livestock. And he made this statement. He lost everything except a nagging wife. And I'm not going to go there. This is a men's only place, but I still don't feel safe. I ain't afraid of nothing, but I'm afraid of that. Of course, God let her go through double the childbirth, and so that kind of was kind of evened everything up. That's what I'm talking about. But he makes this statement when his pain is so severe that he has to take a broken piece of pottery and scratch the boils. He said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain my ways before him. What are you saying, Job? I'm saying my mind's made up. I might be hurt, but I'm not out of the race. I might be hurting, but I'm not going to quit living for God. Make it up in your mind that whatever happens, backsliding is not an option. Oh, put your hands together. David, who was so wonderfully preached about just a few moments ago, made this observation. He said, the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. In other words, when the surveyors came out, what they told me was my inheritance was some pretty lush-looking property. Grass was green, palm trees swaying, creek flowing through the place, man. It looks like Easy Street where I live. I don't know if any of y'all have ever seen pictures of Israel, but that is not a perfect picture of all of Israel. There's a lot of rocks and mountains and some rough places to go when you get to Israel. And if you look at the countryside that was attributed to Asher, when Moses handed out the property, you're going to find out it's some of the roughest territory in all of Israel. And this is what Deuteronomy 33, verse 24 has to say. He's using the word let. Let Asher be blessed with children. 
I'll just, I just tell you right now, folks, it's God's will that you be, your church be fruitful. It's God's will that there be a harvest in your church. It's God's will that there be growth in your church. I worry about churches that never seem to want to grow. Let me just throw this out. It has nothing to do with this message. I don't suppose, or at least it's not in my notes. Let's put it that way. But you remember how when David was dancing before the ark and his wife named Michael was standing there with an attitude, neck moving back and forth a little bit. Uh, first of all, I got a problem with any woman named Mike. But she criticized his worship. And God cursed her and shut up her womb. Now listen, you don't have to praise God like I do. But everybody ought to, ought to be involved in worship of some kind. Do praise in Him somehow. You just don't sit in God's house like this all your life. Amen. Let it be blessed with children. You want to curse your church? God shut up the womb of your church? You start having a problem with worship. You watch worship services. People get the Holy Ghost in worship services. You have revival in worship services. Let Asher be blessed with children. That is, speaks to me of unity. And you will never have revival without unity. And you never will have unity till you start forgiving one another. When you start forgiving one another and letting go of some of your yesterdays, then you're acceptable with your brother and you're in one mind, one accord. Then that's when the harvest starts falling. Go ahead. Read on. God wants your walk to be anointed. Dip his foot in oil. Now he quits using the word let and he moves to another dimension. And now here comes another word. Read it. Thy shoes shall be iron and brass. And as thy days, so shall thy strength be. And everyone said amen. Thank you, Pastor. Now, God knew what the way would be. He knew that the rocks would be so pointed and so sharp that you couldn't walk barefooted just everywhere in your property. He knew that if you wore thin-soled sandals that you would injure your feet. So God said, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Your shoes shall be iron and brass. In other words, you're not going to feel what everybody else would feel. You're going, I'm going to protect you from what you're going through. I'm not going to change the environment. I'm not going to change the landscape. I'm just going to protect you as you can make it through it. Somebody may say, how did you survive? And you'll say, I don't know. But God said, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Somebody praise him. Did you ever go to a shoe store? You walk in and say, do you have this in 11D? 
in a brown or a burgundy or a black. You tell them what size, what style, what color. Somebody needs to get a revelation of the fact that God's got a shoe store. You walking down the street minding your own business, not business, business. And the Lord's leaning up against the front door. And I said, hey, Ballister, your shoes, man, boy. My shoes? Lord, I didn't order no shoes. Oh, I know you didn't. That's why I ordered them for you. And you come in and sit down in his shoe store, and he puts a pair of shoes on you. He said, I, oh, those are nice. You notice when he puts some shoes on you, they always fit the first time. He said, I call these peace. Peace, Lord? Mm-hmm. Because you're getting ready to walk down Turmoil Boulevard. There's going to be turmoil in your health. There may be turmoil in your finances or turmoil in the church or turmoil in your marriage. Come here, son. Stand right there. This is called understanding. His name is understanding. Face that way, understanding. You're looking the wrong way, understanding. You can only go so as far as your understanding will let you go in life. But God is able to give you peace that passeth understanding. And understanding stays there. And somehow God is able to give you peace in the midst of your storm. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, I don't know how you can stand at the grave of your husband and lift your hands and say, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But there's a God who's able to give you peace in the midst of a storm. Hallelujah, hallelujah. About the time you think you're doing good in these shoes called peace, he calls you back to the store and he puts another pair called grace on you. Grace, Lord? Mm-hmm. You're getting ready to walk down Rumor Alley and folk are going to talk about you. And I'm going to help you hold your head up. I'm going to help you keep a smile on your face. You know what the relationship is between you and me. Don't worry about what the heathen say. Just let them rage and say whatever they want to. You just keep a smile on your face and keep living for me. God doesn't change their surroundings, but he helps you survive it. One time you get an invitation to come into his shoe store and he's got a pair of boots. Now we're talking. Boots, Lord? Mm-hmm. I call these worship. You get ready to walk through the valley of despair. And these are the only boots that walk out the other side. When I, there's a song, I don't know if y'all sang it for altar call or not, but when I was a kid, I first heard it. Some woman was singing, these boots are made for walking. Walking's what they'll do. And one of these days, these boots are going to, you pastors look around and find the carnal folks that just. <laughs> well, devil, God gave me some boots. My father told me you can worship your way out of whatever heartache you're in. You can worship your way out of whatever problem you're in. There's a secret involved in worship. <laughs> oh, he is worthy of our praise and adoration. Somebody ought to praise him right now. Thank you, Jesus.
Hallelujah, hallelujah. You don't have to go very far in your Bible before you find a story about a man who was a general, basically, in the army of King Ben-Hadad. And he had a little slave girl in his home. Now, folks, the king of Israel was still on the throne. The prophet was still collecting tithes. And she's in a foreign country, a slave. She could have said, if there's a God, how, why did he let this happen to me? How could there be a God and this happened to me? Why am I here? What I want to know is where was daddy? This is Ballastero. For all I know, daddy was dead. This is not Bible. I'm just, this is just venture, okay? Let me explain something to you. I was in, I don't want to tell you where I was at because I don't want to bring Natchez, Mississippi into this story. But I, I was in a mall. My daughter, I have four sons. I have one drop-dead gorgeous daughter, but she was about three or four years old. We're in this mall, and my wife put our little daughter. Now, she had Martha miniature dress, and she had, uh, you know, little curls and patent leather shoes and anklets with about that much lace on it. And a little patent leather purse could hold two quarters, just all gussied up. My wife was so happy to have a girl after four boys that she would just go on whole hog, you know. And my daughter is on one of these little two-horsey merry-go-rounds. You've seen them. They're not very big. Sometimes they're outside of a Walmart. or, or, But this one was inside the mall. And so my wife had put her money, quarter, whatever it was. And she is from here to the wall from the merry-go-round with her back turned to it looking in the window. The horsies are still going around. The music is still playing. Sister Arlene Cavanis is with my wife. And I'm from here at least. 75 feet or so from here to the front door or so away watching some guys work on some scaffolding inside the mall and I hear Sister Kavanaugh scream Marcia that's my wife's name they got your baby and I turned around to see two guys bigger than me each one of them had a hold of one of the arms of my daughter took her off of the merry-go-round and was running out the door with her now you say, well, Brother Ballesteros, you're a preacher. Well, you know, I didn't think about saying, God bless you, my child. <laughs> it, it didn't enter my mind at that point. I, we were at a conference, but I didn't see any Pentecostal preachers that I could see. There's none there. But I saw a piece of lead pipe on the ground about that long by that scaffolding. And the devil said, pick it up. (laughs) And sometimes the devil's got good ideas. (laughs) I picked up that pipe. Now, I never had a hard time running. I've always been able to run. Still run a little bit, I suppose. When I I went to 26 schools, I, I broke records in two or three schools in running. I never would dress out. I never would compete against other schools. I just, in gym class, I would wear blue jeans and a sweatshirt and still beat everybody. I knew I could catch them. 
It's what I'm going to do after I get there. That's what the problem is. I scream like a, a ninja turned loose, and I'm running. That pipe is in the air. It's ready to... Look, I don't want to bore you with details. Let, let, let me just say I got my daughter back, all right? The ambulance, the ambulance didn't have to look for nobody. I said the ambulance didn't have to look for nobody. They weren't hard to find. That's my daughter you're messing with. And you're less than a father if you're not willing to protect your own child. So where was daddy? He could have been dead as far as I know. And the little girl could have said, If there's a God, how did this happen to me? You're a fool to go down that road. There's no future there. That girl kept on being a witness. She kept on being a light. And God is looking for somebody in this house, in spite of your pain, in spite of your hurt, to keep on being a witness and keep on being a light. Oh, you know I'm telling you the truth. Here's what happened. When David decided he wanted to honor somebody, anybody that was kin to Jonathan. He told his men, said, go, go find anybody that's got Jonathan's DNA. I want them to come here. They're going to be my best bud forever. And they found one man, Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth had a major event happen to him, very traumatic the nurse, his nurse, was running for their lives. And in so doing, she had dropped him. Now, folks, I, I, I call this woman a clumsy nurse because the women in my world, maybe I'm just a pampered pooch. I, I got a good deal when it comes to women. I, I got a wonderful wife, wife hallelujah. And, and I, I, I have... Sisters, mothers, mother-in-law, and sister-in-laws. I, I got daughter-in-laws. Daughter all of them are loving and nurturing. And if they would have a baby in their hands and fall, they're going to twist their body so that their own head hits the ground and the baby's okay. Do you understand what I'm talking about? That's the kind of women I'm raised around. Now, this woman, she really didn't give a big quack over whether or not this baby lived or didn't. They got 70 kids already. They'll make another look just like this one if there's, this one dies. And so this woman dropped the baby, and he spent the rest of his life not being able to stand up properly like everybody else. But when Mephibosheth came before the king, he didn't say, Your Majesty, you know why I'm like this? She did it to me. He didn't point his finger at who hurt him. 
he didn't spend his life explaining why he was like that. But rather he bowed himself down heavily. In other words, put his head on the ground and said, I am but as a dead dog. Now, I know that you can't see me, all of you, where you're sitting. But when a man's got his head on the ground saying, and humbling himself, that's as low as a Jew can go. And when your head's down there, you're having a hard time pointing at who hurt you. You can't even see who hurt you because you're too busy humbling yourself. And if you would humble yourself instead of quit pointing your finger at who hurt you and who said this and who did that. When you get up from there, you're going to be invited to sit at the king's table and enjoy the bounty of all of heaven all the days of your life. Yes, the king knew he was hurt, but he didn't spend his time talking about his ex-pastor or his ex-wife or my parents did this to me. I got damaged by this. Or I got damaged by that. We're all, we've all known what it's like to cry. You can't get out of life without crying. Paul said, Alexander the coppersmith have done me much harm. Oh God, why? You be careful. What you say against the man of God. There, back in the 50s, I'm in the seventh grade, and a man had a problem with my father. It's the only church that my father does not call by name in his book. Dad had asked one of the men, he said, they were building, had a basement church. They were building the top. Dad said, Brother, could I get you to sweep up this trash right here, please? He said, What trash? Only trash we ever have around here is what stands behind the pulpit. We had church a week later, and that man stood up and defied my father in church, and God paralyzed him immediately. The man could not move his arms, his body, it fell over like a piece of just a column. They picked him up like a column and carried him out and couldn't fit him in the car until he repented. Called for my father and asked my father to forgive him. My father laid hands on him and prayed for him. And he was able to sit up normally in the car. I'm saying you don't mess with God's man. Well, no, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I've still got a little bump right here. So let, let, let me... I'm just going to keep plowing this furrow until I, I feel that bump move just a little bit. Huh? Do you know when Joshua was up preaching? This is, not, this is not in my notes. When Joshua was up preaching, oh, Jesus. When Joshua was out fighting the battle, Moses is on the mountain, and he has two men with him. He has Aaron and a man named H-U-R, her. Moses sees the dilemma of God's people. And so Moses holds his hands up. It's like he's praying, oh, God, help us. And as long as his hands were in the air, Israel won. After a while, his hands got tired. So he, well, we're ahead so I can take a breather. But as soon as he dropped his hands, the tide turned. And the enemy got 
the upper hand again. So here's an old man trying to get his hands back up in the air because he sees that there's a correlation between the position of his hands and the victory of the people. And so he's got his hands back up in the air. And they tire again. But Aaron and her are sharp. They pick up what's going on. They can see what's happening. So they make Moses sit down on a rock. And they get his hands and they hold his hands up themselves. They're standing there holding his hands up. And the victory was given to the people of God that day all because Moses' hands were still up in the air. My point to you is your victory on the battlefield has nothing to do with your ability, your strength, or your knowledge, but rather has to do with the position of your pastor's hands. And if you'll spend your life holding up the man of God's hands, there's going to be victory in your home. There's going to be victories in your church. Oh, you know I'm telling you the truth. And when you get in the car and you start talking about the man of God on the way home, you're not holding up his hands. Somebody needs to defend your good pastor. It ought to be you. Oh, come on, clap your hands to the Lord. Paul said, Alexander the coppersmith had done me much harm. He said, said, I I got a thorn in my flesh. He said, it's a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And he said, I prayed three times for the Lord to take it away, but he's wanting me to play hurt. I I just, I can't get rid of it. And and he talked about being beaten. And he even mentioned one place. He said, "When when my first appearance, actually before the authorities, he said, no man stood by me. He said, but the Lord stood by me and he, he strengthened me and he preserved me. I'm telling you, when nobody else will stand by you, it looks like you haven't got a friend in the world. There's a God who will never leave you. Oh, he sees the pain that you're in. He sees what you're going through. Do you know why folks leave church? They leave church because they got offended at something. They don't leave because they got a hangnail on their little pinky. They don't, they don't leave church because they don't like the co- color of the wallpaper, the, the color of the carpet on the floor. They leave church because they chose to be offended. Do you know the Syrophoenician woman chose not to be offended when the Lord said, it's not meat or property to give the children's portion of the dogs? She said, of a truth, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs. And when she chose not to be offended, that's when she got her blessing. Let me just say this. You know, after I was there in South Bend from the time my daddy went there when I was 16. So the people in South Bend knew me for quite a long time. And they knew that my mind was pretty much twisted, but they tried to love me anyway. I don't know if it was a sympathy thing or what, but I'm grateful. And I pastored some wonderful people. Do you know that uh, one night I got up in front of the church and I said you know I got a book in my office I've not read it I've scanned through it the name of it is I'm okay you're okay and I think the premise basically is that there are some people who are perverted and twisted and thieves and liars and whoremongers and they want to believe that everybody else is pretty much that way and uh, if you're twisted you feel like other people are twisted and there's some other people that are decent upstanding citizens and they feel like everybody else is basically a, a decent and honest person so when you're okay with yourself is what it's trying to say, 
you're going to feel like everybody else is okay. So I said with apologies to the author tonight, I would like to talk to you on this subject. I'm not okay. You're not okay. And I said, how many of you knew I got a pain right here in my chest? I got pain right here. And they looked at me kind of funny like they're doing. And I took my tie and I threw it over my shoulder and I unbuttoned a couple buttons and I pulled my shirt back and I had the word pain written with a felt tip marker on my T-shirt. <laughs> I got about the same response then. It hadn't improved much. <laughs> and then I kicked off my shoes and I had the toes cut out of my socks. I said, how many of you knew that I had to live like this? Took off my, I opened up my coat and I had, Grease smeared on the sides of my shirt. So how many of you knew that my wife don't keep up my clothes any better than this? I try not to embarrass her. Turned around. I had took off my coat. I had the back of my shirt just shredded. You can see my T-shirt like it's peeking through jails uh, uh, in a jail cell peeking through the bars. And I said, how many of you knew that this is where I have to live? I fixed my tie, got my shirt buttoned up, put my shoes back on, buttoned my coat back up, and you couldn't see any of those flaws. I said, that's how we all come to church. You don't know what I've had to go through to get here, and I would appreciate if somebody cut me some slack, but on the other hand, when you feel that way, you need to appreciate the fact that there's other folks going through things just about like that, and they would appreciate if you cut them some slack. Your brother's not pain-free. His world is not problem-free. It wouldn't hurt us to be a little understanding of our brothers as we go through life. Can I get a witness from somebody? I got done preaching a conference. A man came up to my hotel room and sat down, gave me a nice, beautiful tie. I think he gave it to me just as an excuse to come to the room. He wasn't there three minutes before his eyes started to well up with tears. And I could see that he was in intense pain. I've preached conferences with this man. A wonderful man. And he said, Brother Ballesterell, he said, I had taught a home Bible study to a man that was uh, basically a homeless guy. And got him in church, baptized him, prayed him through the Holy Ghost. I helped buy him some clothes, helped him get a job. I even helped him get an old second-hand car. I, I taught him some Bible studies, I think 10, 12 Bible studies. And uh, he came over to my house one night before church. He said, I didn't have anybody to help me in the church, nobody to lead my songs. I had to do the song service. I had to do the preaching. I, I just, I'm a one-man show. He said, I just had to do it all. A home missions church. And he said, the man showed up at the door, and I was wondering what's he doing there, but he didn't say much when I invited him on in. And the next thing I know, my wife hands me our little baby. She said, here, you can have the baby. I'm going with him. And those two walked out the door, got in his car, and drove off. And he said, I ran out into the street with my baby in my arms. I'm sobbing. And I, and I watched him as the taillights vanish in the distance. And he said, Something in me just died. He said, I, I went to church that night and I hand my baby over to an old grandma in the church and I had to get up. One of the songs that I'd written out that I wanted to sing, we'd practice and I'm having a hard time playing. He said, but I, 
We sing, when I think of the goodness of Jesus and all he's done for me, my soul cries out, hallelujah. He said, I had to preach that night, and I already had my notes ready to go. It was church time. I was preaching about the goodness of God. He said, I was doing it with tears running down my cheek. What do you do when your wife walks out on you? What do you do when there is a divorce and you you hear the D word shoved in your face for the first time or you find out that your companion's been unfaithful? I'm talking about being willing to play hurt. I don't know how some people do that. I've been fortunate to have a home where my wife and I vowed to each other when we got married. In spite of whatever argument we ever had, we would never use the D word with one another. But we're living in a world, folks, where it's not a perfect world. And there's folks that you know that know what it's like to cry. And they know what it's like to feel pain in their hearts, in their homes. I'm just saying God's still looking for somebody willing to play hurt. I had one of my own sons call me after he was married. It's only been about three, four years ago. And he said, Daddy, I couldn't tell you when I was home. I don't know why. But when I was a kid in school, one of the teachers molested me. I wanted to find something bigger than a lead pipe. I wanted wanted to get a shotgun. I'm sorry if that offends you, but I just wanted to literally kill the person who'd abused my child. As a father, I can't protect everybody. You you understand that? I'm just trying to tell you, one out of six boys, one out of four of our girls, know what it's like to to face some kind of abuse in their lifetime. Those are statistics that are available worldwide. I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that Pentecostal churches are not exempt. So in spite of the baggage that you've had to go through, When you see people come out to church and they're worshiping God, they're not worshiping God because their life is problem free. They're not worshiping God because there's not been any pain in the world, but they're worshiping God in spite of their pain, in spite of their heartache, in spite of their sorrow, in spite of their grief. What do you do when you're hurt? You keep on singing. You keep on worshiping. You keep on praying. You keep on coming. You keep on living for God. You keep on giving. You're not going to solve one problem staying home. Right here's where you get your problem solved. Oh, come on. You know I'm telling you the truth. It's preaching at a church and not too far from here, had about seven, eight hundred people in it. So on a Sunday morning, I don't want to be known as a preacher who gets on this subject and rides it like a hobby horse or something or keeps preaching on it over and over. But since I'm here, just let me deal with it while I'm here. Let me tell you that my microphone don't sound the same. Thank you. Now that I've told you that, I was preaching this church on a Sunday morning, and I was talking about forgiveness. And I said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Your mercy is dependent upon you giving mercy. And so 
I made this statement, and I wasn't on the subject, I don't think hardly two minutes, but I said something to this effect that Paul said in Romans, and I'm only dealing with Romans, what shall separate us from the love of God? He said, neither things present nor things to come. What he does not say in Romans are the things that are behind. In another epistle, he says something about forgetting those things which are behind. But in Romans, he just says, what's going to separate me? Now, I may be pushing the envelope here, and I recognize that. But my feelings are, it's not so much today problems that bother you. It's not tomorrow's problems that's going to cause you to leave church. It's the stuff that's happened back there that you can't get past and you can't get over. That's the stuff that causes you to stay home. And that's the stuff that you roll and toss and turn in the bed. You can't get over. It gives you indigestion. You, oh, you know I'm telling you the truth. And so I, I'm mentioning that. And I, I just said this. I said one morning back in the early 80s, I don't even know who the talk show host was. It was some kind of family therapist like a Dr. Joy Brown. I don't know who was on in 1980 or 81, somewhere back in there. But my wife had breakfast going. It was going to be ready about 8 o'clock or so. And I was just lounging, reading a a Brother Louis L'Amour story and listening to the talk radio at the same time. And the first caller came on and said, crying, said, Oh, doctor, I'm so happy to get to talk to you. And that's all they said. And this therapist let there be dead air silence for about 10 seconds. And then she said this, How old were you when you were molested? I set straight up. I didn't see it coming. Maybe it's just because I'm a clueless male and I'm not keen at picking up on stuff of the female species. Very good. I don't know. And the woman cried and she told her age and they went to a break. She told her, hold on. My point was this, that I just said that in passing. I said, I don't care. I I said, that dirty devil who molested you, Prison's too good for them. I hate what they did. God hates what they did. But if you want the forgiveness and the mercies of God, there are some things you've just got to turn it over to Him and say, God, I forgive them because I want your mercy on my life. That's the point I was making, and I went on. So here I am getting ready to give the altar call, and the pastor touches my arm. He said, excuse me, Brother Ballestero. He said, the Holy Ghost spoke to me, and I handed him the microphone, and he said, If you're here today and you were abused when you were younger and you're having a hard time getting past it. Now, this is something that I could never do in anybody else's church. I never did it in my own church. But this guy was the father of the church. He was the dad. He said, if you are having a hard time getting past all of your yesterdays, you come up here and Brother Ballester and I are going to pray a prayer of deliverance for you here this morning. That altar was almost 120 feet across. I'm talking about a big altar, a big church. They filled it up twice with sobbing adults all the way across. I, my shoulders shook and I bawled like a baby because there's pain in every church. 
you can't get away from. These were the people who were singing amazing grace and worshiping the Lord. But now you're just a service or two before, but now you see them reeling with the pain of what they're really carrying down deep. I don't know what you've been through, and I'm not here to try to dredge up a bunch of mess. All I'm saying is God's looking for folks that are still willing to play hurt. In spite of your pain, you keep on being faithful. In spite of your old, some things you just got to turn it over to Jesus say, God... I plead the blood of Jesus. I forgive him in Jesus' name. Keep my spirit right. Keep my mind right. Because I'm still going to live for you in spite of the hell I've had to go through. When I was just a young preacher, I heard about a man named Brother Larson, missionary to Columbia. And Brother Larson, so the story goes, found himself as a new preacher in this nation, he got him a house, and when the locals found out that he was trying to start a church, the religious officials of that area would not permit a a place to be sold or rented or leased to him to have church. They forbade anybody to come, and so he was stymied in that area. His wife had complications in her pregnancy, and no doctor was allowed to treat her. She died in childbirth. No mortuary would take her, and no graveyard would allow her to be buried. And Brother Larson made this statement. He said he felt like the Holy Ghost told him, Don't cry. They're watching you. And so I, he had, the little baby that was born lived. As a matter of fact, last April I was preaching in Toronto, and that baby girl was there married to a preacher. But she was just a teenage baby, just a day or two old. And Brother Larson had to go out in the backyard with neighbors leaning over the block fence and watching him as he got a shovel out and he dug a hole to put his wife in. He got some boards and he built her a casket. And nobody would talk to him. And he had to stop and feed the baby ever so often and just kept on building dressed his wife up as pretty as he could and laid her in the casket and nailed her shut. And then he lowered her down into the grave and got his little baby and he read a scripture and he prayed a prayer and then he sang some songs and then he preached a sermon. And when he got done with the sermon, he prayed one final prayer, laid the baby down and got a shovel and filled the grave up, loaded the grave up and picked up the baby and walked into the house. As a result, all those hundreds of people watching him over the backyard wall, something was stirred into their hearts when they saw this man. They listened to him preach and they listened to him sing and they knew something was different. As a result of that, hundreds of thousands of people received the Holy Ghost in the next number of years in Colombia. One man was willing to play hurt. I'm telling you, there's a world watching you. You've got family watching you, a neighborhood watching you. They're watching you on the job. They're watching you in school. Hell's watching you. Heaven's watching you. I say, whatever you have to go through, make up your mind, I'm going to keep on living for God. Backsliding is not an option. Getting bitter is not an option.
In South Bend, when my father was the pastor, 120 people left in one year. Some of you are here. I think Brother Hare preached, what was it, 10 weeks or more? One of the best revivals I ever had under my father. Brother Boyd came and preached for me. One of the best revivals I ever had when I was the pastor. But there were folks that left there because they wanted their jewelry and they wanted television and they went on down the road. And, uh, oh, I think about a dozen years or so ago, I was invited to preach at a church, a special meeting. You have, we had 37 churches within 15 miles of our church that baptized in Jesus' name and claimed to get the Holy Ghost. So I'm sitting on the platform and I look out there and I count 21 families sitting in that audience that used to go to the church that I pastored. And I thought, <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. Uh, Brother Burr used to say, shoot a little, show, little lower, Sheriff, they're riding Shetlands. And so I was, I looked at them, and the Lord, I feel, knew what was going on in my heart because it was like, I'm very hesitant to say the Lord said this, the Lord said that. It was like the Lord said to me, Ballastero, if you mess with that, I'm going to take my anointing and let you preach the rest of this message by yourself. And that scared me. And I turned to the Song of Solomon, and I got up and I preached where it said he's altogether lovely. And I preached on the loveliness of Christ, and I began to weep while I was preaching. The crowd began to weep, and about six got the Holy Ghost sitting in the seats. We had a wonderful service. Oh, there was two threes that sat there and laughed at me and made all kinds of ugly faces. And I just had to ignore them and preach to the folks that wanted to hear some preaching. What I'm trying to say is, I had the question asked to me, whose kingdom are you trying to build, yours or mine? How long do you let a war go on? And I sat there thinking, God, oh, they're having a good time. I'm the one with the problem. I've got to turn loose of this mess. I've got to get rid of this. I've got to get past some of my yesterdays. I'm not preaching you something I found in a book somewhere. I'm preaching you from some of the hell I've had to go through in my own life. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, nobody's world is perfect. I know what it's like trying to make it to the platform and have somebody give me a piece of their mind out there in the aisle and tell me how low down I was and run my wife down. I have to come up to the pulpit and start a service and, and preach and, and sing and you know what it's like. The devil uses... There's a custom-made hell for preacher-haters. My sister-in-law was six years, six months old when my wife and I got married. I'm, I'm getting closer to getting done. And her, her and her husband passed her in Orange, uh, Orange California. Their one-year-old baby found a slit in the screen door about that big and pushed until it made it bigger and crawled through and went from here to there and fell into a swimming pool and in less than two minutes was drowned. And at the, my wife, I flew her there. I was preaching in Denver at a conference. And I flew my wife, put on the plane at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. My wife stayed, I think, 36 hours in the intensive care unit with the baby it was on life support. It, it didn't make it. My wife suffered a stroke, and uh, it, it was it was not 
It was not good. Nothing about it was good. But my wife and I were amazed that at the funeral with the baby's casket in front, the choir behind, my sister-in-law got up and she sang a song that had this line in it. God is too good to be unkind. How do you do that? How do you sing songs like that when your baby's dead? I don't know how you do those kinds of things. There's folks that's tougher than I am. But I want to tell you this much. God's looking for somebody that even if they're hurt, they're going to keep on keeping on. Every September, I find myself for the last half dozen years riding four-wheelers through parts of, actually we start in Mate 1, West Virginia, right on the Kentucky-West Virginia line there, not too far from Williamson, Kentucky. We ride, we don't go on a straight line. It's what they have, what they call the Hatfield-McCoy Trail, right? goes all the way from there all the way down to Atlanta, Georgia. You can ride four-wheelers on them. And we don't do that. We go out and ride and come back to sleep in the same place every night and go out this way and come back. We, we ride hundreds of miles. Uh, I don't know, sometimes anywhere from four to 600 miles. Well, not maybe 600, but we ride a lot of miles during the course of a week. And uh, riding some of the ridges and coming down off those hills, go down to the holler, as they say there, get something to eat. And sometimes we ride from two o'clock in the, uh, 6 o'clock at night to 6 in the morning, and uh, sometimes 2 o'clock in the morning, and other times we, we're more sane. We ride in the rain. It doesn't make any difference. We're just there to just have a good time. Some preacher friends and their kids, and I got two, three of my boys. We all go. And we have a, a guide that goes with us from time to time, and this one guide that we had, we don't pay him. We just buy their gas and buy the meal, and they're happy to go with us. They, they're either bootleggers or dope dealers or something, and I don't know, but... They, they know the countryside real good. And we were taking a little break, and the one man said to me, he said, he's a Baptist guy, he said, Brother Ballestero, he said, when I was just two weeks old, I was in a bassinet, and we had one of those hot water steam humidifiers, and my daddy was carrying a bucket of boiling water, and he tripped on a carpet and spilt that boiling water on my leg in that bassinet, and as a result, he said, I received third-degree burns from my knee down. I said, Rick, that's horrible. I said, did you have to have surgery? He said, oh, yeah, I had to have skin grafts and everything. I said, did the scars still come up to your knees today? He looked at me like, what planet are you from? He said, no, it only comes up to my ankle today. I said, your ankle? He said, yeah, when you're a baby, from your foot to your knees, not but that far. Oh, whoa. <laughs> and he took off his shoe and he pulled off his sock and he showed me where the scar was. And then he smiled, his best Baptist smile. And he said, scars don't grow. I got bigger than my scar. And the Holy Ghost came on me when he said that. Listen, if we're still overwhelmed with our scars, it's a sign we're not growing. We're not getting any bigger. Oh, scars don't grow. God didn't mean for that to be overwhelming all the days of your life. Oh, somebody ought to get happy in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Remain standing, if you would, please. I'm going to stop. I got stuff I didn't tell you, but I'm hungry.
and I'm going to quit. And I thank you for your patience. It's been such an honor to have been part of this. In the land of my father's people, Barcelona, Spain, 1992, the Olympics. The pride of all of Great Britain was a young man in the 400-meter race by the name of Derek Redman. Nobody seemed to be able to beat Derek Redman. The United States didn't even have anybody that could beat Derek Redman. On this particular day, he looked on either side of him. He was in lane number five, and he noticed that he had already beaten everybody that was in the race with him. Today should not be a problem. When the starter pistol fired, he took off and easily pulled ahead. It looked like Derek was going for another gold. And then somewhere about the 120-meter mark, first big turn, he blew a hamstring and went face down on the ground in shock surprise. The crowd gasped, could not imagine what had happened. His body screamed with pain. He was temporarily blinded by the fall and the pain. The right runners thundered on by him. and He tried to move and started to pull himself up just a little bit and he saw the stretcher carriers running towards him to pick him up and carry him off the field. And something in him said, don't let him carry you off the field. And so he got up and on his good leg, you could see him begin to hop. If you've ever seen a picture, read a magazine article about Derek Redman, one sports writer, and I, there again, I, I, I couldn't tell you who's top team in any sports, I, nor could I tell you who's, who's the top 500 on anybody's charts on music. I, I, I just, I'm just sorry. I like news, and that's about it, okay? So I, I, I'm clueless there, but... This came to my attention because of the power of the story and what it meant to me. But this sports writer who wrote way back yonder, he said he wrote a story under the title of Finishing at Any Cost. And he said that somewhere out of the crowd, about section 111, row 25, seat 22, came a big burly man who pushed his way past the security guards and ran out onto the field. By this time, the gold is won, the silver is already declared, the bronze is written down in the history book, and now the crowd is watching one lone man hopping on one leg. The picture that I got to see is just nothing but a grimace on his face as he's hopping on one foot. And as Derek continues to hop, his daddy comes out there. Daddy Redman comes out on the field. And he says to his son, Son, you don't have to do this. And the boy said, Yes, Daddy, I do. He said, Then if you're going to do it, you're not going to do it without me. Put your arm around me, son. And he put his arm around his father. And the father put his arm around the son. And all Derek could say was, Keep me in lane five, Daddy. 
And the crowd stood in silence as Derek hopped to the finish line. When they got to the finish line, Jim Redmond took his hand off and let his boy hop across by himself. The crowd gave him a standing ovation. And the sports writer, I don't know his name, but he made this statement, which I shall try to never forget. He said, at this writing, I don't remember who won the gold or who won the silver or even who won the bronze. But everyone in the stadium that day will never forget the man who was willing to finish at any cost. What I'm trying to tell you is that if you're here today, in spite of your pain, in spite of what you've been through, if you have this much desire, at least this much desire, to make it across the finish line, the Father's not going to let you make the journey by yourself. I'm inviting somebody to come forward today while we have a song and let the Father wrap his arms around you. You can make it all the way home. He's just looking for someone willing to play hurt. I'm going to beg anybody to come. Why don't we all find a place to pray? Pray one with another. There's folks here today that are not pain-free. Praise God. I see a crimson stream of blood.